Chapter 12 The Ordeal of Richard Feverell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Ordeal of Richard Feverell by George Meredith. Chapter 12 Laying of Ghosts is a public duty and as the mystery of the apparition that had frightened little clare was never solved on the stage of events at raynham where dread walked the abbey let us go behind the scenes a moment morally superstitious as the baronet was the character of his mind was opposed to anything like spiritual agency in the affairs of men and when the matter was made clear to him it shook off a weight of weakness and restored his mental balance so that from this time he went about more like the man he had once been grasping more thoroughly the great truth that this world is well designed nay he could laugh on hearing adrian in reminiscence of the ill luck of one of the family members at its first manifestation call the uneasy spirit algernon's leg mrs doria was outraged she maintained that her child had seen it not to believe in it was almost to rob her of her personal property after satisfactorily studying his old state of mind in her sir austin moved by pity took her aside one day and showed her that her ghost could write words in the flesh it was a letter from the unhappy lady who had given richard birth brief cold lines simply telling him his house would be disturbed by her no more cold lines but penned by what heartbroken abnegation and underlying them with what anguish of soul like most who dealt with him lady feverel thought her husband a man fatally stern and implacable and she acted as silly creatures will act when they fancy they see a fate against them she neither petitioned for her right nor claimed it she tried to ease her heart's yearning by stealth and now she renounced all mrs doria not wanting in the family tenderness and softness shuddered at him for accepting the sacrifice so composedly but he bade her to think how distracting to this boy would be the sight of such relations between mother and father a few years and as man he should know and judge and love her let this be her penance not inflicted by me mrs doria bowed to the system for another not opining when it would be her turn to bow for herself further behind the scenes we observe rizzio and mary grown older much disenchanted she discrowned dishevelled he with gouty fingers on a greasy guitar the diaper sando of promise lends his pen for small hires his fame has sunk his bodily girth has sensibly increased what he can do and will do is still his theme meanwhile the juice of the juniper is in requisition and it seems that those small hires cannot be performed without it returning from her wretched journey to her wretcheder home the lady had to listen to a mild reproof from easy-going diaper a reproof so mild that he couched it in blank verse for seldom writing metrically now he took to talking it 
With a fluent, sympathetic tear, he explained to her that she was damaging her interests by these proceedings, nor did he shrink from undertaking to elucidate wherefore. Pluming a smile upon his succulent mouth, he told her that the poverty she lived in was utterly unbefitting her gentle nurture, and that he had reason to believe, could assure her, that an annuity was on the point of being granted her by her husband. And Diaper broke his butt of a smile into full flower as he delivered this information. She learnt that he had applied to her husband for money. It is hard to have one's prop of self-respect cut away, just when we are suffering a martyr's agony at the stake. There was a five minutes tragic colloquy in the recesses behind the scenes, totally tragic to Diaper, who had fondly hoped to bask in the warm sun of that annuity, and re-emerge from his state of grub. The lady then wrote the letter Sir Austin held open to his sister. The atmosphere behind the scenes is not wholesome, so, having laid the ghost, we will return and face the curtain." That infinitesimal dose of the world, which Master Ripton Thompson had furnished to the system with such instantaneous and surprising effect, was considered by Sir Austin to have worked well, and to be for the time quite sufficient, so that Ripton did not receive a second invitation to Raynham, and Richard had no special intimate of his own age to rub his excessive vitality against, and wanted none. His hands were full enough with Tom Bakewell. Moreover, his father and he were heart in heart. The boy's mind was opening, and turned to his father affectionately reverent. At this period, when the young savage grows into higher influences, the faculty of worship is foremost in him. At this period, Jesuits will stamp the future of their chargeling flocks, and all who bring up youth by a system and watch it know that it is the malleable moment. Boys possessing any mental or moral force to give them a tendency, then predestinate their careers, or, if under supervision, take the impress that is given them, not often to cast it off, and seldom to cast it off altogether. In Sir Austin's notebook was written, Between simple boyhood and adolescence, the blossoming season, on the threshold of puberty, there is one unselfish hour, say, spiritual seed time. He took care that good seed should be planted in Richard, and that the most fruitful seed for a youth, namely example, should be of a kind to germinate in him the love of every form of nobleness. I am only striving to make my son a Christian, he said, answering them who persisted in expostulating with the system. And to these instructions he gave an aim. First be virtuous, he told his son, and then serve your country with heart and soul. The youth was instructed to cherish an ambition for statesmanship, and he and his father read history and the speeches of British orators to some purpose. For one day Sir Austin found him leaning cross-legged, and with his hand to his chin, against a pedestal supporting the bust of Chatham, contemplating the hero of our Parliament, his eyes streaming with tears. 
People said the baronet carried the principle of example so far that he only retained his boozing dyspeptic brother Hippias at Raynham in order to exhibit to his son the woeful retribution nature wreaked upon a life of indulgence, poor Hippias having now become a walking complaint. This was unjust, but there is no doubt he made use of every illustration to disgust or encourage his son that his neighborhood afforded him and did not spare his brother, for whom Richard entertained a contempt in proportion to his admiration of his father, and was for flying into penitential extremes which Sir Austin had to soften. The boy prayed with his father morning and night. "'How is it, sir?' he said one night. "'I can't get Tom Bakewell to pray.' "'Does he refuse?' Sir Austin asked." "'He seems to be ashamed to,' Richard replied. "'He wants to know what is the good, and I don't know what to tell him.' "'I'm afraid it has gone too far with him,' said Sir Austin, "'and until he has had some deep sorrows he will not find the divine want of prayer. "'Strive, my son, when you represent the people, to provide for their education. "'He feels everything now through a dull, impenetrable rind. "'Culture is halfway to heaven.' Tell him, my son, should he ever be brought to ask how he may know the efficacy of prayer, and that his prayer will be answered, tell him, he quoted the pilgrim's script, who rises from prayer a better man, his prayer is answered. I will, sir, said Richard, and went to sleep happy. Happy in his father and in himself the youth now lived. Conscience was beginning to inhabit him, and he carried some of the freightage known to men, though in so crude a form that it overweighed him, now on this side, now on that. The wise youth Adrian observed these further progressionary developments in his pupil, soberly cynical. He was under Sir Austin's interdict not to banter him, and eased his acrid humours inspired by the sight of a felonious young rickburner turning saint, by grave affectations of sympathy and extreme accuracy in marking the not widely distant dates of his various changes. The bread-and-water phase lasted a fortnight. The vegetarian, an imitation of his cousin Austin, little better than a month. The religious, somewhat longer, the religious propagandist, when he was for converting the heathen of Loburn and Burnley, and the domestics of the abbey, including Tom Bakewell, longer still, and hard to bear. He tried to convert Adrian. All the while Tom was being exercised like a raw recruit. Richard had a drill sergeant from the nearest barracks down for him, to give him a proper pride in himself, and marched him to and fro with immense satisfaction, and nearly broke his heart, trying to get the round-shouldered rustic to take in the rudiments of letters, for the boy had unbounded hopes for Tom as a hero in grain. Richard's pride also was cast aside. He affected to be, and really thought he was, humble. Whereupon Adrian, as by accident, imparted to him the fact that men were animals, and he an animal with the rest of them. "'I an animal!' cries Richard in scorn. And for weeks he was as troubled by this rudiment of self-knowledge as Tom by his letters. 
Sir Austin had him instructed in the wonders of anatomy to restore his self-respect. Seed-time passed thus smoothly, and adolescence came on, and his cousin Clare felt what it was to be of an opposite sex to him. She too was growing, but nobody cared how she grew. Outwardly, even her mother seemed absorbed in the sprouting of the green offshoot of the feverel tree, and Clare was his handmaiden, little marked by him. Lady Blandish honestly loved the boy. She would tell him, If I had been a girl, I would have had you for my husband. And he, with the frankness of his years, would reply, And how do you know I would have had you? causing her to laugh and call him a silly boy, for had he not heard her say she would have had him? Terrible words he knew not then the meaning of. "'You don't read your father's book,' she said. Her own copy was bound in purple velvet, gilt-edged, as decorative ladies like to have holier books, and she carried it about with her and quoted it, and, Adrian remarked to Mrs. Doria, hunted a noble quarry, and deliberately aimed at him therewith, which Mrs. Doria chose to believe, and regretted her brother would not be on his guard. "'See here,' said Lady Blandish, pressing an almondy fingernail to one of the aphorisms, which instanced how age and adversity must clay, enclose us ere we can effectually resist the magnetism of any human creature in our path. Can you understand it, child?' Richard informed her that when she read, he could. "'Well, then, my squire,' she touched his cheek and ran her fingers through his hair, "'learn as quick as you can not to be all hither and yon with a hundred different attractions, as I was before I met a wise man to guide me.' "'Is my father very wise?' Richard asked. "'I think so,' the lady emphasized her individual judgment. "'Do you—' "'Richard broke forth, and was stopped by a beating of his heart. "'Do I what?' she calmly queried. "'I was going to say, do you—I mean, I love him so much.' "'Lady Blandish smiled and slightly coloured. "'They frequently approached this theme and always retreated from it, "'always with the same beating of heart to Richard, "'accompanied by the sense of a growing mystery, "'which, however, did not as yet generally disturb him.' Life was made very pleasant to him at Raynham, as it was part of Sir Austin's principle of education, that his boy should be thoroughly joyous and happy. And whenever Adrian sent in a satisfactory report of his pupil's advancement, which he did pretty liberally, diversions were planned, just as prizes are given to diligent schoolboys, and Richard was supposed to have all his desires gratified while he attended to his studies. The system flourished. Tall, strong, bloomingly healthy, he took the lead of his companions on land and water, and had more than one bondsman in his service besides Ripton Thompson, the boy without a destiny. Perhaps the boy with a destiny was growing up a trifle too conscious of it. His generosity to his occasional companions was princely, but was exercised something too much in the manner of a prince, and, notwithstanding his contempt for baseness, he would overlook that more easily than an offence to his pride, which demanded an utter servility when it had once been rendered susceptible. If Richard had his followers, he had also his feuds. The Papworths were as subservient as Ripton, 
but young Ralph Morton, the nephew of Mr. Morton, and a match for Richard in numerous promising qualities, comprising the noble science of fisticuffs, this youth spoke his mind too openly, and, moreover, would not be snubbed. There was no middle course for Richard's comrades between high friendship or absolute slavery. He was deficient in those cosmopolite habits and feelings which enable boys and men to hold together without caring much for each other, and, like every insulated mortal, he attributed the deficiency, of which he was quite aware, to the fact of his possessing a superior nature. Young Ralph was a lively talker, therefore, argued Richard's vanity, he had no intellect. He was affable, therefore, he was frivolous. The women liked him, therefore he was a butterfly. In fine, young Ralph was popular, and our superb prince denied the privilege of despising, ended by detesting him. Early in the days of their contention for leadership, Richard saw the absurdity of affecting to scorn his rival. Ralph was an Eton boy, and hence being robust, a swimmer and a cricketer. A swimmer and a cricketer is nowhere to be scorned in youth's republic. Finding that manoeuvre would not do, Richard was prompted once or twice to entrench himself behind his greater wealth and his position, but he soon abandoned that also, partly because his chilliness to ridicule told him he was exposing himself, and chiefly that his heart was too chivalrous. And so he was dragged into the lists by Ralph, and experienced the luck of champions. For cricket and for diving, Ralph bore away the belt. Richard's middle stump tottered before his ball, and he could seldom pick up more than three eggs under water to Ralph's half-dozen. He was beaten, too, in jumping and running. Why will silly mortals strive to the painful pinnacles of championship? or why, once having reached them, not have the magnanimity and circumspection to retire into private life immediately. Stung by his defeats, Richard sent one of his dependent Papworths to Pier Hall, with a challenge to Ralph Barthop Morton, matching himself to swim across the Thames and back. Once, thrice, or thrice, within a less time than he, Ralph Barthop Morton would require for the undertaking. It was accepted, and a reply returned, equally formal, in the trumpeting of Christian names, wherein Ralph Barthop Morton acknowledged the challenge of Richard Doria Feverell, and was his man. The match came off on a midsummer morning, under the direction of Captain Algernon. Sir Austin was a spectator from the cover of a plantation by the riverside, unknown to his son, and, to the scandal of her sex, Lady Blandish accompanied the baronet. He had invited her attendance, and she, obeying her frank nature, and knowing what the pilgrim's script said about prudes, at once agreed to view the match, pleasing him mightily. For was not here a woman worthy the golden ages of the world? one who could look upon man as a creature divinely made, and look with a mind neither tempted nor taunted by the serpent. Such a woman was rare. Sir Austin did not discompose her by uttering his praises. She was conscious of his approval only in an increased gentleness of manner, and something in his voice and communications, as if he were speaking to a familiar, a very high compliment from him. 
while the lads were standing ready for the signal to plunge from the steep decline of greensward into the shining waters sir austin called upon her to admire their beauty and she did and even advanced her head above his shoulder delicately in so doing and just as the start was given a bonnet became visible to richard young ralph was heels in air before he moved and then he dropped like lead he was beaten by several lengths the result of the match was unaccountable to all present and richard's friends unanimously pressed him to plead a false start but though the youth with full confidence in his better style and equal strength had backed himself heavily against his rival and had lost his little river yacht to ralph he would do nothing of the sort it was the bonnet had beaten him not ralph the bonnet typical of the mystery that caused his heart those violent palpitations was his dear detestable enemy and now as he progressed from mood to mood his ambition turned towards a field where ralph could not rival him and where the bonnet was etherealized and reigned glorious mistress a cheek to the pride of a boy will frequently divert him to the path where lie his subtlest powers richard gave up his companions servile or antagonistic he relinquished the material world to young ralph and retired into himself where he was growing to be lord of kingdoms where beauty was his handmaid and history his minister and time his ancient harper and sweet romance his bride where he walked in a realm vaster and more gorgeous than the great orient peopled with the heroes that have been for there is no princely wealth and no loftiest heritage to equal this early one that is made bountifully common to so many when the ripening blood has put a spark to the imagination and the earth is seen through rosy mists of a thousand fresh awakened nameless and aimless desires panting for bliss and taking it as it comes making of any sight or sound perforce of the enchantment they carry with them a key to infinite because innocent pleasure the passions then are gambling cubs not the ravaging gluttons they grow to they have their teeth and their talons but they neither tear nor bite they are in counsel and fellowship with the quickened heart and brain the whole sweet system moves to music something akin to the indications of a change in the spirit of his son which were now seen sir austin had marked down to be expected as due to his plan the blushes of the youth his long vigils his clinging to solitude his abstraction and downcast but not melancholy air were matters for rejoicing to the prescient gentleman for it comes said he to dr clifford of loburn after consulting him medically on the youth's behalf and being assured of his soundness it comes of a thoroughly sane condition the blood is healthy the mind virtuous neither instigates the other to evil and both are perfecting toward the flower of manhood if he reach that pure in the untainted fullness and perfection of his natural powers i am indeed a happy father but one thing he will owe to me, that at one period of his life he knew paradise, and could read God's handwriting on the earth. 
now those abominations whom you call precocious boys your little pet monsters doctor and who can wonder that the world is what it is when it is full of them as they will have no divine time to look back upon in their own lives how can they believe in innocence and goodness or be other than sons of selfishness and the devil but my boy and the baronet dropped his voice to a key that was touching to hear my boy if he fall will fall from an actual region of purity he dare not be a sceptic as to that whatever his darkness he will have the guiding light of a memory behind him so much is secure to talk nonsense or poetry or the dash between the two in a tone of profound sincerity and to enunciate solemn discordances with received opinions so seriously as to convey the impression of a spiritual insight is the peculiar gift by which monomaniacs having first persuaded themselves contrive to influence their neighbours and through them to make conquest of a good half of the world for good or for ill sir austin had this gift he spoke as if he saw the truth and persisting in it so long he was accredited by those who did not understand him and silenced them that did we shall see was all the argument left to dr clifford and other unbelievers so far certainly the experiment had succeeded a comelier bracer better boy was nowhere to be met his promise was undeniable the vessel too though it lay now in harbour and had not yet been proved by the buffets of the elements on the great ocean had made a good trial trip and got well through stormy weather as the records of the bakewell comedy witnessed to at raynham no augury could be hopefuler the fates must indeed be hard the ordeal severe the destiny dark that could destroy so bright a spring but bright as it was the baronet relaxed nothing of his vigilant supervision he said to his intimates every act every fostered inclination almost every thought in this blossoming season bears its seed for the future the living tree now requires incessant watchfulness and acting up to his light sir austin did watch the youth submitted to an examination every night before he sought his bed professedly to give an account of his studies but really to recapitulate his moral experiences of the day he could do so for he was pure any wildness in him that his father noted any remoteness or richness of fancy in his expressions was set down as incidental to the blossoming season there is nothing like a theory for binding the wise sir austin despite his rigid watch and ward knew less of his son than the servant of his household and he was deaf as well as blind adrian thought it his duty to tell him that the youth was consuming paper lady blandish likewise hinted at his mooning propensities sir austin from his lofty watch-tower of the system had foreseen it he said but when he came to hear that the youth was writing poetry, his wounded heart had its reasons for being much disturbed. Surely, said Lady Blandish, you knew he scribbled. A very different thing from writing poetry, said the baronet. No Feverel has ever written poetry. I don't think it's a sign of degeneracy, the lady remarked. He rhymes very prettily to me. 
a London phrenologist and a friendly Oxford professor of poetry, quieted Sir Austin's fears. The phrenologist said he was totally deficient in the imitative faculty, and the professor that he was equally so in the rhythmic, and instanced several consoling false quantities in the few effusions submitted to him. Added to this, Sir Austin told Lady Blandish that Richard had, at his best, done what no poet had ever been known to be capable of doing. He had, with his own hands and in cold blood, committed his virgin manuscript to the flames, which made Lady Blandish sigh forth, "'Poor boy!' Killing one's darling child is a painful imposition, for a youth in his blossoming season, who fancies himself a poet, to be requested to destroy his firstborn without a reason, though to pretend a reason cogent enough to justify the request were a mockery, is a piece of abhorrent despotism, and Richard's blossoms withered under it. A strange man had been introduced to him, who traversed and bisected his skull with sagacious stiff fingers, and crushed his soul while, in an infallible voice, declaring him the animal, he was making him feel such an animal. Not only his blossoms withered, his being seemed to draw in its shoots and twigs, and when, coupled thereunto, the strange man having departed, his work done, his father, in his tenderest manner, stated that it would give him pleasure to see those same precocious, utterly valueless scribblings among the cinders. The last remaining mental blossoms spontaneously fell away. Richard's spirit stood bare. He protested not. Enough that it could be wished. He would not delay a minute in doing it. Desiring his father to follow him, he went to a drawer in his room, and from a clean linen recess, never suspected by Sir Austin, the secretive youth drew out bundle after bundle, each neatly tied, named, and numbered, and pitched them into flames. And so farewell, my young ambition, and with it farewell all true confidence between father and son. End of chapter 12